Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful that you've gathered us together here today in celebration of who you are and of what you've done, and specifically on the day of the week that you, Jesus, rose from the dead. We pray, Father, that you would help us understand your word this morning. These claims are so amazing. Please cause us to feel the gravity of them, to be rightly impacted by them, And please, Father, I pray this morning that you would help us have this faith that Jesus talks about. Help us understand exactly what this faith is. And please, Lord, help us have it. Increase our faith. Strengthen our faith. Help us to be certain that you can and will do things in our lives in response to us trusting in you to do it. Help us to be as certain as we possibly can, as confident as we possibly can. Increase our confidence through your word. Increase our confidence through prayer. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith. This faith is powerful. It's powerful whether it's expressed in prayer or not. We pray, Lord, that you would help us have this faith that we might experience your power today and so that we can rightly pray with faith and experience your power as a result of our prayers being answered too. We so want to experience your power, Lord. Give us a glimpse of the power that you say is available to us here. Help us to behold that this morning, to see the real power. And I pray, Father, you would help us experience that in our lives. Help me to preach this passage clearly and effectively today. Be glorified in this time of worship. Help us to listen attentively, to be focused to your word, to value you even now, to worship you even now as we, uh, as we revere and honor uh, you through uh, revering and honoring your word by paying close attention to it and by seeking to live in accordance with it, to be changed by it. Don't let there be any of us, Father, who leave this time unchanged, but by your Holy Spirit, if there are any in this room that do not know you, cause this to be the day that they come to know you. And for those, Father, who do know you, cause us to grow in our faith this morning, to have more of this faith that Jesus talks about and pour out your power on us. Let us experience the incredible power that you say is really, truly available to us through faith. It's in your name we pray all of these things. Amen. All right, if you don't have your Bibles already open to Mark chapter 11, you can go ahead and turn there now. In, uh, in Star Wars episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back, which is the second Star Wars movie released, by the way. Uh, There's a great scene, a really great scene, where Luke, the up-and-coming Jedi, is being trained by Jedi Master Yoda on the swampy planet that Yoda lives on. And by using the Force, which connects all living things in the Star Wars universe, Luke's practicing moving rocks around. When all of a sudden, his robot, R2-D2, starts making some concerning noises, Luke's spaceship was sinking down into the swampy water. Luke went over and said, Oh no, we'll never get it out now. So certain are you, Yoda replied. Always with you it cannot be done. Hear you nothing that I say? Master, Luke says, moving stones around is one thing. This is totally different. Yoda said, No, no different. Only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned. All right, I'll give it a try, said Luke. No, replied Yoda, try not. Do or do not. There is no try. So Luke turns around to face the water, and he takes a breath, and he tries to lift his spaceship out using the force. But after some promising movement initially, the ship sinks out of view, and Luke's attempt is ultimately unsuccessful. The apprentice sighs. He puts his head down, and he goes over to sit next to his master, I can't, he said. It's too big. Size matters not, Yoda said to his discouraged apprentice. He said, look at me. He's a small creature. Judge me by your size, do you? Hmm? And well, you should not. For my ally is the force, and a powerful ally it is. Yoda then describes the force to Luke. And Luke, after standing up, says, you want the impossible. And he leaves his master and goes to sit down and pout by himself. And then if you've seen the movie, you know that's when the Jedi Master stands up, Yoda stands up, or he is standing, he closes his eyes, he lifts his hand, and using the force, he lifts the spaceship out of the water and moves it over and puts it on the ground. Luke says, I don't believe it. And Yoda replies, that, that is why you fail. 
That is why you fail. In Mark chapter 11, as you just heard read, our master, Jesus, said, quote, Have faith in God. Truly I, tell, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. That is an absolutely incredible statement. That's incredible. You and I think are very much like Luke Skywalker. Luke looks at his plane stuck in the swamp. The way we look at the mountain, that's impossible to move, we say. Always with us, it cannot be done in the words of Yoda. Maybe you think, you know, moving stones around is one thing. Even moving a spaceship out is different. But Jesus here, he's talking about moving more than a spaceship. He's talking about moving a mountain, a mountain. Yoda corrects Luke's like us. He says the difference is only in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned. Size matters not. What matters is your ally and what a powerful ally you have. The force is not real. I hate to break it to you. But your ally is real. And your ally is far more powerful than the force. In fact, your master proved, just like Luke's master did, that this ally is so powerful, even what you think is impossible is possible. Perhaps like our Jedi friend Luke, you don't believe it. That, though, as Yoda said, may precisely be why you fail. Maybe. I'll tell you this, we can't afford to fail today. We cannot afford to fail to experience God's power. I desperately need it. You desperately need it. We need to experience His power in our lives. We need to experience His power in our church. We need to experience His power in our mission field. We need God's power. And what I want to ask you is this, do you feel like you're experiencing God's power as much as possible right now. I don't. Do you feel like our church is experiencing God's power as much as we could? I don't. How can we experience it more? Well, this scene, not from Star Wars Episode 5, but from Mark chapter 11, contains an answer for us. And there are three things that I want us to see from this scene today. First, I want you to behold the real power available to us through faith. The power to move mountains. And second, I want you to see the key to experiencing that power. It's a certain kind of faith. And by that I don't just mean a particular kind of faith, I do. But I specifically mean a kind of faith in God that is certain about receiving what it seeks. A certain faith. And third, I want you to know how you can have that certain faith. So point number one, mountain-moving power. Point number two, a certain kind of faith. And point number three, how to have it. How to have that kind of faith. How can we move mountains? The sermon today is the answer to that question. A certain kind of faith in God makes the impossible possible. That's the big idea. A certain kind of faith in God makes the impossible possible. Let's look first at the power our master says is available to us. Point number one, mountain-moving power. In the New Testament, we have four ancient biographies about Jesus. Uh, these books are called Gospels. The word gospel means good news. Uh, and the Gospels recount the things that Jesus said and did. Uh, but these biographies, unlike some of the histories that we write today, uh, they, were, uh, they were historical accounts, but they were written uh, with theological purposes as well. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is considered by most scholars to be the first of the four accounts written. Uh, it was written perhaps in the 50s or 60s AD. And uh, in fact, it's likely that Matthew and Luke actually used some of Mark's material in the composition of their own biographies. Uh, while the book of Mark, just like the other Gospels, is technically anonymous, the author isn't explicitly stated in the book itself, uh, church tradition supports the view that the author was John Mark, who was the son of a woman named Mary. Acts 12 says that the church in Jerusalem met at her house. And Mark was also a missionary companion of Paul, and according to church history, uh, and perhaps one of Peter's letters too, Mark was a companion of Peter. So Mark's biography may, at least in part, reflect the eyewitness testimony of the Apostle Peter. 
The question, who is Jesus, is one of the biggest questions in Mark's gospel. And through his narrative, Mark portrays Jesus as the powerful Messiah and Son of God. He may paint this picture, especially in the first half of his book, where he takes his brush and he depicts Jesus astonishing and amazing the peoples, teaching with authority, performing mighty deeds. The kingdom of God has come with Jesus, Mark says. Initially, Jesus is he's trying to conceal his identity as the Messiah, it seems, perhaps to, uh, perhaps to prevent uh, any messianic misconceptions from resulting in a, uh, an escalation with the authorities before the proper time. But the narrative reaches a pivotal point when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah in Mark chapter 8. And though the disciples are often confused about the true role of the Messiah, the role, Jesus' role becomes clear in the second half of Mark's gospel. As Jesus himself said in Mark 10, 45, the prophesied Son of Man, through whom God would exercise his glorious reign, has not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And with colorful brushstrokes, Mark paints for his readers Jesus' identity as the Messiah through the visualization of Jesus' glory and the transfiguration, through his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah's promise about the coming king, and through Jesus' confrontation with unfaithful Israel in Jerusalem. And that confrontation is actually the context of our passage today. If you've read Mark before, perhaps you've noticed that his biography is characterized by a fast-paced, action-packed narrative. He sometimes chooses to arrange events in a topical rather than chronological fashion, perhaps to develop a particular theological theme. And he uses irony and a literary device that's called intercalation, which is where he sandwiches one idea between another idea, making a point through their connections. We actually see him do that in our passage today. Jesus' teaching on faith and prayer is embedded here in, an, in a literary device that some have called a Markan sandwich. Again, Mark takes one idea and he sandwiches it between another idea. In chapter 11, Mark has taken the story of Jesus' so-called temple cleansing and he sandwiched it between Jesus' cursing and withering of the fig tree. Why? Well, he seems to be connecting these stories to make a point. Let's look at the text together. Look at Mark chapter 11. After Jesus' triumphal entry on a donkey, it says in verse 11 that Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And on the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. Fig trees were common in the area, both wild, uh, both wild fig trees and cultivated fig trees. They typically bore fruit more than once a year. Um, and fig trees, they're, uh, they're, uh, or figs are, are sweet, uh, kind of pear-shaped looking fruit. Um, and even though the figs were out of season at this time, there may have been a chance that something edible uh, was still on the tree. And so Jesus goes up to it. Verse 13 says, When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So the tree was fruitless, it was barren. And Jesus responds to the fruitless tree by cursing it. And then Mark brings us to the middle of his sandwich. Verse 15. And Jesus and the disciples came to Jerusalem. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He drove out those who were selling and those who were buying, both economic parties. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Make a mental note of that, a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers, he says. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And were seeking a way to destroy Jesus, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. One, comment, one commentator talked about how this story is sometimes referred to as Jesus' temple cleansing, uh, but that may not be the best word for it. Cleansing seems to imply that uh, Jesus was restoring the temple here to its proper function. Um, but that doesn't seem to be what's actually happening. This commentator said, quote, Mark portrays the clearing of the temple not as its restoration, 
but as its disillusion. Rather than, rather than restoring the temple, Jesus was overturning the economic activity that the temple system depended on. He was, quote, laying an axe at the root of the temple as an institution. His actions may also prophetically anticipate the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. One of the ways that Mark suggests this judgmental meaning to us is by sandwiching Jesus' temple demonstration with the fig tree story. He began with the fruitless fig tree being cursed, then talked about Jesus in the temple, and now brings us back to the fig tree again. Verse 20, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. The expression about the tree withering away to its roots captures the completeness of its withering. And Peter remembered verse 21 and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. He's saying, whoa, look at that. That's crazy. Just, just the other day we were walking by this exact same tree. It was alive and you cursed it. This is the one you cursed. And look at it. It is completely dead now. Completely dead. Cursed is a word that can mean, quote, to cause injury or harm by means of a statement regarded as having some supernatural power. So the withering of the fig tree was no coincidence. It was a supernatural demonstration of the power of God. Jesus cursed it and it died supernaturally. What's the significance here? By sandwiching Jesus' uprooting of the temple commerce with the fig tree being cursed, and the fig tree completely withering. As one scholar said, quote, Mark interprets the cleansing by means of the cursing. Mark's point seems to be that the temple or that Jerusalem is coming under God's judgment, just like the fig tree. And perhaps like the fig tree, it is being judged because of its fruitlessness. Interestingly, though, the weathered fig tree is used here to teach us another lesson. There's another lesson here, too, and that's the lesson I want us to focus on today. What is the lesson? It's a lesson about faith. First about faith, and then Jesus teaches us about prayer too. It's a lesson about faith, and then about prayer. That's the lesson I want us to consider today. Verse 21, Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, saying, quote, Have faith in God. Jesus tells them, Have faith in God. Might seem like a strange reply at first. The fact that Jesus answers Peter this way, as uh, one scholar noted, implies that Jesus' power to supernaturally sap the fig tree of life, that power came from God. And Jesus said, have faith in God, because by faith, God can exercise that same power through you too. Like one person put it, he uses the fig tree, the withered fig tree, as an object lesson for his disciples. What you've witnessed with the fig tree, Jesus says, that's the power of faith. Cursed one day, dead the next. That's power. That's what's possible with faith. Just like Yoda taught his apprentice what was possible with the force by lifting Luke's ship out of the water, Jesus teaches his apprentices what is possible with faith in God by withering the fig tree with a word. But Jesus' lesson doesn't end there. He said in verse 23, Truly I say to you, truly may stress the genuineness or the importance of what he's about to say. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. It will be done for him. Wow, just, just let the magnitude of that claim hit you for a second. Do you really believe this? Do you really believe what Jesus is saying here? Imagine if I told you to go outside right now and to stand in front of one of the Santa Cruz Mountains and say to it, be taken up and thrown into the sea and have it torn off the face of the earth and hurled into the ocean. You'd say, I can't do that. That's impossible. And you'd be right. But that's the point. Jesus is saying that faith in God makes even the impossible possible. Now, perhaps you're thinking to yourself, well, obviously didn't, Jesus didn't mean this literally. 
Moving a mountain is a metaphor or hyperbole for the great things that we can do through faith. We couldn't actually move a mountain. But wait a second, are you sure about that? Is Jesus, he may have meant this literally when he said it, but even if he didn't, even if he only intended this to be a proverbial way of saying that the impossible is possible through faith, like one person may have described it, then what does that mean? Well, that means that even the humanly impossible is actually possible through faith. And I think that would include actually, literally, physically hurling a mountain into the sea. Actually possible. Yes, let that sink in for a second. Moving a mountain is actually possible if there is a good reason for God to do it. Just as it was actually possible for Jesus to wither the fig tree with a word. That actually happened. Humanly speaking, these are both impossible events. But I think that in light of Jesus' teaching here, these are both physically, literally possible for the exact same reason, which is what? Faith in God. Faith in God. See, God is the acting force. And with God, all things are possible. Even that which is impossible for you. That's why the fig tree can actually wither in a single day. That's why the mountain can actually move. It's not because of you. It's because of God. You can't. God can. As Yoda said, you have a powerful ally. And with this ally, the size of the objects that need to be moved matters not. Now, one very important thing to know about your ally is that he responds to a certain kind of faith. God certainly acts in response to people who rightly believe that he certainly can and certainly will do something and then assuredly trust in him to do so. God works through certain faith. And that's why this faith here is so powerful. It's so powerful because the all-powerful God responds to it. It's so powerful because the all-powerful God works through it. How powerful is it? So powerful that it makes the impossible actually possible. This faith in God actually makes the impossible possible. Anything is possible with God. That's not a cliche. That is a true, breathtaking reality. I'm not talking here just about the power of positive thinking. That's like a joke compared to this. I'm talking about real power to change the world around us. Real power because the real God really acts in response to it. Jesus said, verse 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Verse 22, he says, Therefore, or as the NET says, For this reason, for this reason, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. The power of this faith to achieve the impossible means that praying with this faith will achieve anything. Anything. When we pray with this kind of faith, and it's a specific kind of faith Jesus is talking about here. We'll see that in a moment. We can have confidence that our petitions will be granted. God responds to this kind of faith. Perhaps our immediate tendency is to try to qualify a statement like this. Don't soften it. Don't soften this statement. What I want you to notice here is how remarkably unqualified Jesus' claim is. He says in verse 24, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whatever you ask has also been translated all that you ask. You know what I think that means? I think it means all that you ask. There's no limit to what we will receive if we ask for it with this kind of faith. Whatever you ask, humanly possible or impossible, is achievable with this kind of faith. Okay, that's huge. That's huge. There is so much power here. 
so much power. I so want to experience this power. I so want our church to experience this power. Don't you? We need to experience this power in our lives. If God wills, and that's necessary, as we'll see, praying with certain faith means having certainty that God wills it. But if God wills, there is enough power here to raise the dead to life. There's enough power here to bring spiritual revival or renewal to our church, to our lives. There's enough power here to see sinners saved and added to our body. To see this church grow to a place where it can actually send people out to plant more churches. There's enough power here to abolish the murder of unborn babies. There's enough power here to cause a great awakening to happen in our city to win Silicon Valley from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. There's enough power here to reach the nations with the gospel. So much power. So point number one, what kind of power is available to us? Mountain-moving power. That's what we have, the power to do the impossible. The power to supernaturally sap a tree of life and the power to hurl a mountain into the sea actually able to do that. This power is available to us because our ally is all-powerful. And he responds to this kind of faith. Now what kind of faith is it exactly that Jesus describes here? Jesus says it's a certain kind of faith. I like the little play on words there. It's not just any type of faith. It's a certain kind of faith. But what kind of faith is it? The certain kind It's the kind of faith that is certain about receiving what it asks. Jesus has in mind here a faith of that nature. It is a certain faith. This is very important for us to grasp. Do you want to experience this real mountain-moving power? Do you want that? Well, here's the key. Point number two, a certain kind of faith. Jesus said, verse 22, have faith in God. That's the lesson. Have faith in God. What does it mean to have faith in God? R.T. France said that this faith is, quote, the expectation that God, or more often Jesus, can and will exercise supernatural power. It's the expectation that God can do something and will do something. He can and he will. Like others have put it, faith is a combination of believing that and trusting in believing that and trusting in we must believe that god can do something and will do something and we must personally trust in him to do so we must rely on him or lean on him or depend on him to do so believing that and trusting in believing that he can and will and trusting him too. Jesus describes his faith further in verses 23 through 24. The kind of faith that Jesus describes here is characterized by a particular degree of confidence. Verse 23 says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Verse 24, he says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. The faith Jesus describes is a coin with two sides. The first side, as verse 23 says, is to, quote, not doubt in your heart. That's the first side. And the second side is, quote, believe that you have received it. These are two sides of the same coin. Not doubting on one side, believing on the other side. The word doubt means, quote, to be uncertain or to be at odds with oneself or to waver. It means I'm going back and forth in my heart on this. Part of me thinks God can do this. Part of me does not. Part of me thinks God will do this. Part of me does not. Part of me is unsure. I'm uncertain. James said in chapter 1 of his epistle, quote, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without approach. And what? It will be given him. Sounds pretty similar. 
Verse 6, he says, But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave that the sea is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That's a great image. A wave tossed about on the sea, back and forth by the wind. If your heart is oscillating back and forth like a wave in the sea, don't expect God to respond to that. He might, but don't count on it. God responds to confident faith. In Mark's gospel, Jesus' miracles are connected to people's faith. When there's faith, miracles happen. And when there's not, they don't. Remember, you just heard read earlier when Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth in Mark chapter 6. The people there took offense at Jesus. And it says in verse 5 that Jesus, quote, could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled. Why? Because of their unbelief. Their lack of faith was connected to their lack of experience of God's power. Did you hear that? Their lack of faith was connected to their lack of experience of God's power. God may respond to weaker faith. He may respond to less confident faith too. But in the context of our passage in Mark 11, it's extremely confident faith. I would say perhaps even certain faith. That's what I think, certain faith that God will certainly respond to. So the first side of that coin is not doubting. Not doubting that God can and not doubting that he will do what you seek. And so, of course, not lacking trust in him. The flip side of the coin is belief. Jesus says you can't be uncertain. You must be certain. In verse 23, Jesus said, quote, Whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. To believe means, quote, to consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust, or perhaps to be convinced of something. Verse 23 says, believe that what you say will come to pass. However, this verse might be more literally translated as, quote, believe that what you say is coming to pass. It's present tense. Believe that what you say is coming to pass. It's coming to pass already. But verse 24 actually takes it even further. In verse 24, Jesus says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. You haven't received it yet, but you have to be so confident that God will grant it to you. It's as if you already have it right now. What level of confidence is that? That's about as confident as you can get, I think. This confidence seems to reach up to the level of certainty. So how does Jesus describe this kind of faith that God responds to? It is a certain faith, or at least an extremely confident faith. Not doubting on one side, believing on the other. You must not be uncertain, you must be certain about receiving it. So certain, it's as if you've already received it. It's believing, without a shadow of a doubt, that God certainly can and certainly will grant something, and then trusting in Him to do so with unwavering confidence. Does that make sense? That makes sense? Jesus says, whatever you have certain faith in God to do, God will certainly do. Whether it's humanly possible or impossible, whether it's moving a mountain or withering a fig tree, our all-powerful ally certainly responds to certain faith. Jesus is not talking about, by the way, the kind of faith where you know, we believe God can and may do something, but we're not sure if he will. Again, God might respond to that faith too, but the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about here is a certain kind of faith, a faith that a certain God can and will act. That kind of faith, Jesus says, God certainly responds to. Now, on that note, uh, I want to make clear that having confident faith in God to do something isn't just trusting in him to do whatever he was going to do, any, uh, whatever he was gonna do anyway. 
There's nothing remarkable about that. It's not like we're supposed to have faith in God to bring the sun up tomorrow and then be impressed when he does that. Right? The sun was probably going to rise anyway, whether you had faith in him to do that or not. Right? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. This is about us having faith in God, knowing that if we do, he'll do what we're trusting him to. So verse 23, Jesus says, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. God will do this in response to our certain faith in him. Without that kind of faith, we may not receive it. Our faith is that God will do this if we believe. If we don't, he might not. For example, with regards to saving faith, our faith is not that God will save us regardless of whether we trust in him or not. Our faith is that God will save us if we trust in him to save us. We're saying to God, I know you can save me and I know you will save me if I trust in you to do so, which I do, right? In fact, faith in God to save us may be the most common and yet at the same time the most marvelous way we see this kind of mountain-moving faith exercised. Typically, that which is most common is not that which is most marvelous. The ordinary is usually not extraordinary. However, when it comes to God's salvation of sinners, that is both a common and ordinary event, and yet also one of the most marvelous and extraordinary miracles that ever occurs. The salvation of sinners is humanly impossible. It is withering a fig tree with the word. It is hurling a mountain into the sea. It is impossible for us. Salvation requires that the wicked be made righteous. It requires that the wicked be made righteous. It requires the satisfaction of God's perfect justice for our sin. It requires the recreation of humankind. The good news, the gospel, is that God has done the impossible. He has made the impossible possible. He has moved the greatest mountains to rescue you. The creator entered into creation to live a life of perfect obedience in your stead. He lived the life that you failed to live so that his righteousness could count for you a sinner. And as Mark says, he gave his life as a ransom for you. Your sin counted for him and he paid your penalty on the cross, the equal of your hell, so that the perfect justice of God was satisfied. The wicked were made righteous in God's sight. God did the impossible. He made the wicked righteous. And through the Messiah's death and resurrection, the creator recreated you. He put to death your heart of stone through his death and through his resurrection gave you a heart of flesh. He has made you a new creation, transformed you from a wicked rebel to a righteous child of his. And one day when Christ comes again in glory, we will be bodily resurrected as he was, delivered entirely from sin and suffering and death and hell forever to inherit eternal life as restored creations in his restored creation. God restored that which was hopelessly broken and he made the wicked righteous. He made the wicked righteous. He did the impossible. The most marvelous act of salvation is a common or regular act of God. Doing the impossible is what God does every single time he saves a sinner like you. Salvation is one of the greatest manifestations, I think, of God's mountain-moving power, of his power to achieve the impossible. And that power is experienced by all who what? 
by all who believe, by all who trust in God to save them. What does the most famous verse in the Bible say? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him, trusts in him, should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him, whoever has faith in God, faith in Christ to save him, will be saved. He certainly will experience the power of God to achieve the humanly impossible act of salvation. Have you trusted in him to save you? If not, trust in him today. Experience the impossible today. We can have this certain faith in God for our salvation. Believe that God certainly can and certainly will save you if you trust in him to do so. And then trust in him with unwavering confidence to save you. As Jesus says in verse 23, it will be done for you. It will be done for you. The mountain of your sin will be moved. God mightily responds to this kind of faith. We can have certain faith in him to do this. However, I also think that we can have this certain kind of faith for other things too. Or perhaps at least something similar to this kind of faith. In fact, Jesus says that we can pray with this type of faith for some requests. Verse 24, he says, Therefore, because of the power of this kind of faith, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Hopefully we all get what prayer is. Remember, prayer is not some kind of mechanical process where we do X and then out pops Y from God. It's not like a gumball machine where you put in the quarter and turn the handle and then out pops the gumball. No, prayer is personal. It is a fundamentally relational activity. It is much more like your child talking to you as his parent. It is man talking with his maker. It is creation speaking to its creator. Prayer is, simply put, us talking with God. We are persons. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are persons. And that means when we are praying, we are persons talking to another person. And as we just talked about, one very important thing to know about the persons we're talking to in prayer is that they respond to this kind of faith. That's part of the way God is. That's part of what he does. He acts in response to the certain faith of his people. So strive to ask him for things with this certain kind of faith. One interesting item to note here is that in verses 22 through 25, every time you see the word you in the ESV, it's actually translating a plural you in the original. It's a you all. And so this could mean that Jesus was referring specifically to communal prayer here instead of to private prayer. Possibly, I'm not sure. It's also possible that Jesus' teaching on prayer here should be understood against his condemnation of the temple, which was intended to be what, he said? A house of prayer, if you recall from earlier. As one scholar suggested, one possibility is that, quote, the temple was no longer the place of prayer as an expression of faith in God. Another possibility is that if the temple is under God's judgment, just like the fig tree, and it will no longer function as the house of prayer, as one commentator asked, where will the tradition of prayer continue? That was the question of this scholar. It will not be in the temple, but as one said, the house of prayer will be, quote, replaced by the praying community. Those are possibilities. Whatever the contextual significance of Jesus' teaching on prayer, and whether it is only communal prayer he had in mind or perhaps private prayer too, the teaching in verses 23 through 24 on the power of certain faith seems clear. A certain kind of faith in God makes the impossible possible. Whether that faith is expressed in prayer or not. Verse 23, by the way, doesn't explicitly mention prayer. It's not until verse 24 that Jesus begins talking about prayer. 
And so I think that this faith is not just for prayer. Having it is powerful, period. God responds to it. But we should strive to have it. We should not only strive to have it, but when we pray, we should also strive to pray with it, to pray with it. Now, in verse 25, Jesus adds a teaching on forgiveness, which unfortunately we don't have time to go into deeply right now. But I want you to read it. He says in verse 25, Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So in addition to praying with certain faith, Jesus talks about the importance of praying with forgiveness if we want our prayers to be powerful. God responds to certain faith. However, he may not respond to those who fail to forgive. Right? Forgiveness is required among those who have truly experienced God's forgiveness. No forgiveness shown to others means no forgiveness has been received from God. And how confident can you be that God will honor the prayers of a rebel who remains unreconciled to him? Or perhaps to a servant that he has forgiven 10,000 talents, but who refuses to forgive his fellow servant 100 denarii. How confident are you God will honor the prayers of that person? If we want our prayers to be powerful, we must pray with certain faith. Certain faith is powerful. And if we want our prayers to be powerful, we must pray with forgiveness. So, with that said, take a moment to ask yourself later on today, is there anyone you need to forgive or perhaps seek forgiveness from? Don't let your prayers, or if communal prayers in mind here, don't let our prayers be hindered by a lack of reconciliation. Be reconciled. We have an all-powerful ally in God. He has the power to move mountains, the power to achieve the impossible. And the key, Jesus says, to experience his mountain-moving power is certain faith, a certain kind of faith. It's the kind of faith that rightly believes God can, certainly can, and certainly will give you what you seek if you trust in him to do so. And then it confidently trusts in him to do so. That's the kind of faith God certainly responds to, a certain faith. That's the kind of faith we want to have in him to act whenever we possibly can. And that's the kind of faith we want to pray with whenever possible. So how can we have this certain kind of faith? How can we have it? Point number three, how to have it. I know I want to have more faith like this. I want to experience God's power more. Don't you? I'm sure you probably do too. How can we have it more? Well, surely, you know, Jesus isn't saying that we should somehow manufacture or conjure up faith in God to do something when we have no basis for believing that he will, right? Jesus isn't telling us to just psych ourselves out, to try to convince ourselves that something will really happen when we have no reason to believe that it's going to happen. Like, I'm going to try really, really, really hard to just believe that God will get me that promotion. I'm going to muster all my willpower to have faith in God to do this. No, that's, that's not what he's talking about here. The Bible never condones blind faith. That's believing something without a good reason. The Bible never condones irrationality. It condemns it. But the alternative to blindly trying to believe isn't to just throw up our hands then and say, well, I just don't believe God will do X, so I won't even bother trying to believe. Now, I think that this type of faith is something we should try to have. I think it's something we should aspire to, something we should seek after, something we should work for. Whenever possible, we should try our hardest to have certain faith. We should try to make ourselves rightly believe that's an important word, rightly believe that God certainly can and certainly will do something. And then we should try to confidently trust in him to do it. Try. How? I'll give you two ways. Number one, first, have good reasons to believe. If you don't have any good reasons, try to find some. We should never believe without having a good reason to believe it. Uh, we shouldn't believe that God will hurl one of the Santa Cruz mountains into the ocean unless we have a good reason to believe that he will. 
Where could we go, though, to find our faith rightly increased? There's many places, but I think the best place is actually right here in front of us, the Scriptures. Try to see if you can biblically justify faith in God to receive what you seek. In the Bible, there are some things God directly provides us with certainty about. For example, you heard John 3.16 earlier, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because God says this in his word, we can rightly be convinced that God certainly can and certainly will save all who trust in him to be saved. We can believe that with certainty, and we can trust in him to save us with unwavering confidence. Not irrationally, but rationally. God's word provides us with all the reason we need to have certain faith in him to do that when we trust in him to do so. And so just as Jesus said, we can have good justification for not doubting in our heart that God will grant us the salvation we seek. Because of God's word, we can rightly have the same degree of certainty that God will grant salvation to us as if we had already received it. We can be that certain that he will do so because his word says directly that he will. The Bible, however, doesn't directly provide us with certainty, with certainty about everything we could ask God for, right? That said, there may be other things it can indirectly provide us with certainty about. Even if it doesn't give us absolute certainty, it can at least help increase our faith in God to do something. And the more faith, I think, the better. How can it do this? Let me give you an example. If your child comes up to you because she scraped her knee playing outside and she needs a Band-Aid, she can probably approach you with certain faith that you will give her a Band-Aid. Correct? She can rightly have no doubt in her heart that you will give her a band-aid. She can be just as certain that she will get one from you as if she had already received it. How? Well, it's not because you explicitly told her that morning that when she scrapes her knees, she can come inside and you'll give her a band-aid. No, her faith is justified because she knows you. She's certain that you can give her a band-aid and she's certain that you will when she asks you for it. Maybe she's certain because of things you've done in the past for her, like giving her a Band-Aid when she's gotten hurt before, or maybe giving one to her sibling. Maybe she's certain because of the things that you said to her. She's heard you tell her that you love her and care about her, and she can tell that you really want to help her. Even though you haven't told her that you will give her a Band-Aid, she can have certain faith that you will. And similarly, I think there are things we can have faith in God to do, even if he hasn't explicitly told us that he will. Know God. Look to the things he has said. Look to the things he has done. Look to his words and his works. You can have your faith increase too. God's words and his works, as revealed in Scripture, give us good reasons to believe that he has the power to do specific things and that he has the desire to do specific things. His words and his works give us good reasons to believe what he can do or perhaps will do. So when you pray, always try to find a reason to rightly have faith. And again, this faith I think is powerful whether it's being expressed in prayer or not. But if we use prayer as an example, since she just talks about praying with this kind of faith, when I pray for God to save babies through our sidewalk ministry at Planned Parenthood, I can believe with certainty that God can save babies. I can believe that with certainty. He's revealed that through his words, just like in Proverbs 21, verse 1, where he says, quote, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Surely if God can turn a king's heart wherever he will, he can control the heart of a young woman considering an abortion, right? And through his works, God's also revealed that he has the power to speak all of creation into existence through his word. He has the power to recreate human beings, to turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Surely if he has the power to do all these things, he's demonstrated that in his works, I should be able to ask God to save babies with the belief that he can certainly do that. His words 
and his works enable me to believe that this is something God can certainly do. Even though he hasn't said that directly in his word, his words and his works make that clear. I can believe that with certainty. What about the belief that he certainly will? Can I believe that? I don't know if I can have absolute certainty yet, but I think I should at least be very, very confident that he might. In Proverbs 6.17, God says that he hates, quote, hands that shed innocent blood. I'm certain, certain, that his heart breaks over the shedding of innocent blood inside those walls. I'm certain that he abhors it. I'm certain that he is moved far more than I am by the unspoken plight of the needy and the helpless. In James 1.27, God says that part of pure and undefiled religion is, quote, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That's what pleases our God, practically caring for the needy. I know for certain that God cares for the needy in the womb. I'm certain he does. And his works also make me certain of the same thing. I'm certain of his love for those in need and of his deep desire for their well-being. How do I know that? Well, didn't Jesus give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf? Didn't he make the lame walk? Didn't he heal the sick? Didn't he give his life for the life of others? How could I doubt his love for the needy? So yes, God's words and his works may not make me absolutely certain that he will save babies at Planned Parenthood, but I think they should at least make me very, very, very confident that he will. Because of his words and his works as revealed in Scripture, I should have great faith and I should pray with great faith even if I can't pray with certain faith yet, I should have great faith that I will receive what I'm seeking. Knowing God, I should rightly believe that he certainly can save children and that he might very well do so. And I should rightly trust in him to do so accordingly. Rightly believing that and rightly trusting in with as much confidence as I can biblically justify Obviously, there are many things we might be able to ask God for that we will not find a good biblical basis for asking with certain faith. Someone might ask for worldly prosperity for a new Lamborghini or a mansion in Pebble Beach, but what reason from Scripture could rightly justify their confidence that God will grant them that? None, obviously. Just because we ask doesn't mean we will receive. We must ask in certain faith, and that certainty must be justified. However, I want to make it clear that having certain faith isn't possible for every desire of ours. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't desire it or pray for it. In fact, a few chapters later in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. At first request, remove this cup from me. Jesus did not pray that with certain faith that God would grant it to him. He still desired it anyway, and he still prayed for it anyway. Not every desire of ours or every prayer request of ours needs to be accompanied by certain faith. We can still desire things and we should still pray for things even if we're not sure that God will grant that request. That said, given the power of certain faith, and given Jesus' teachings here in Mark 11, I think we should always strive to have as much confidence and as much certainty in God as we justifiably can. Try to increase your faith. Try to find good reasons for it in God's words and his works. Do you do that when you pray? Do you try to pray with certain faith? Or at least with as confident faith as you can? If not, start today. You might see a difference and how much power from God you experience in your life. Try to find reasons to rightly, rightly, correctly have faith in God to grant your requests. Go to the scriptures. When we ask our Father to do things, strive to ask him with the most faith possible. Earlier I mentioned that there are two ways we can try to have certain faith in God. The first is to, is to have good reasons for it, um, which we may be able to find in the scriptures. And the second is to ask God for it. Ask him for it. That's not independent of the first way either. We always need to have good justification for our faith, either from the scriptures 
or perhaps from God's working in church history, or perhaps from how we've seen him work in our life or in the lives of others, or something else like that. But if you're struggling to find good justifications for faith in God to do something, or if you have good reasons to trust in him to do something, and you still feel like your heart is, as James said, a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, going back and forth in doubt, then ask our Lord to increase your faith. Ask him for help. He wants you to have faith. In Mark 9, there's a beautiful story where a distressed father comes to Jesus in verse 17 saying, quote, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Bring the boy to me. And so they brought the boy to Jesus. And when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and to water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This poor father who's desperate for his boy, afflicted by a wicked demon since childhood. He's probably heard about Jesus. Perhaps he heard that Jesus had performed healing miracles or cast out demons before. Maybe he has reason to believe that there's hope for his son, that he might find what he seeks from Jesus. But perhaps he's not certain that Jesus actually has the power to save him. He says in verse 22, If you can do anything, please have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. What a response is that? Maybe we should be more like this father who wants so badly to believe for his boy. He cries out, Lord, help my unbelief. Cry that out to God yourself, Father. Help my unbelief. Lord, help my unbelief. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Our God is so gracious, even with imperfect faith, he still acts to save us. When you're struggling to believe, ask God for help. Cry out to him for help. Be honest about your struggle and ask him for faith. Ask God, Lord, if there are any good reasons for me to have faith in you to grant what I'm seeking, please show them to me. Help me believe. And if I have good reasons, but I still struggle with doubt, then Father, please do away with my unbelief. Rid me of my doubt. Please help me. I want more faith. I need more of this certain kind of faith. Perhaps you do too. How can you have it? Find good reasons for it and ask God for help. Find good reasons for it in God's words and his works and ask him for help. The withered fig tree stood there in front of the disciples as proof that the impossible was possible through certain faith in God or at least through extremely confident faith in God. Jesus said in verse 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. How can you move a mountain? How can you achieve anything for that matter? Have certain faith in God to do it. Faith that God certainly can and certainly will grant what we seek if we trust in him and then confidently trust in him to do it. This is the kind of faith that God responds to mightily. A certain kind of faith in God makes the impossible possible. As Yoda said, the size of the objects that need to be moved matters not. What matters is the power of your ally. Brothers and sisters, through Jesus, we have an all-powerful ally in our Heavenly Father. He has the power to move mountains. He has the power to achieve the impossible. Sometimes we struggle to have certain faith in God to act. 
And perhaps, as Yoda said, that is why we fail at times. Perhaps we fail to experience more of God's power in our lives because we lack certain faith or confident faith. We have mountains that that need to be moved, don't we? Even if we just consider the state of our church, if we want to see God grow our body here through the salvation of sinners, we desperately need to experience his power. We can become so pragmatic at times, even naturalistic in our thinking, so focused on strategies and stuff. It's not that those things aren't important, but we have to recognize that what we want to see happen here is humanly impossible. It is impossible. We need God to do the impossible, which he can, and he does that in response to certain faith. So strive for that faith, or at least have the most confident faith that you can justifiably have. As we're praying more for prayer requests together as a church or through the app that we're using now, strive to pray with certain faith. Find good reasons for certain faith and ask God for help. Through certain faith, the mountains can be moved. A certain kind of faith in God truly makes the impossible possible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us this kind of faith. Help our unbelief, Lord. We ask you, as that man did, to help us believe. Please, Father, help us to find good reasons in your words, in your works, and in any other place we can to have faith in you to do the things we seek. And please, Father, hear our cry to help our unbelief. Give us this certain kind of faith that Jesus talks about. Give us a certain kind of faith that we need in you to certainly act and grant us what we seek. Give us that, Father, so we can experience more of your power here. Do it for your glory and now of your love for us, we pray. It's in your name. Amen.